KMTT Kimitzion Tetzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim And this is Ezra Beck and today is Tuesday Tet Bishvat And today's share will be given by myself The weekly share, the sixth, uh, the sixth chapter The sixth share in the series on problems in medieval philosophy We spoke last week about Hashkacha Pratit, about divine providence. We were basically going over the 17th chapter in the third section, the third book of the Moren of Uchim, where the Rambam defines five different opinions, five different schools of thought concerning Hashkacha. The first one was that there was no Hashkacha. The second one was basically that there is Hashkacha Kladit, general Hashkacha, which he assigned to Aristotle which means that everything in the world follows certain rules, certain laws, which are themselves expressions of Chochmah, of the divine intelligence. But because they're rules, individuals are not included in any uh, particular kind of providence. The third opinion, now it begins to get interesting, was the opinion that the Rambam assigned to the Asharia, to Orthodox Islam, which says that everything that takes place in the world is a direct result of God's will. God's will itself is subject to no other rule other than the autonomy of God's will. The Rambam rejected this opinion, and then we got to the fourth and the fifth opinion. The fourth opinion is the opinion that the Rambam uh, assigns to the Muqtazaliya, which is a Radix, a, a, uh, an Islamic sect of philosophers, and the fact is that it more or less corresponds to the opinion of Hafsajigan. And the fifth opinion, the Rambam calls Dat Torateinu Hakdosha. It's not immediately apparent in the Rambam what the difference between the fourth and the fifth opinion is. When the Rambam sums up the the, the all five opinions, he has the following statement. He says, I, I've given you now five opinions, and this is what you can say. Everything that happens in the world. So, he skips the first one. He says, Aristotle would say, it's an accident. The Asharia will say, it's because of will. The Muqtazaliya will say that's because of wisdom, and we will say that it's a result of that which is uh, worthy, that which is appropriate for man according to his actions. And that's my answer. In other words, he's saying that the fourth opinion says everything is based on God's wisdom, and the fifth opinion says that everything is based on God's justice. And then he gives the difference in terms of what is indeed the most important problem for medieval uh, religious philosophy in general, the problem of evil, and he sums up as follows. He says, because of this, the Asharia, that's the third opinion, finds it possible that God will torture the perfectly righteous man in this world and place him eternally, even in the next world, in fire. And the reason will be because they will say that is God's will. The Muqtazaliya will say that that is injustice. And therefore, if there is pain in this world, even to an ant, he will be recompensed in the next world. And we say that all these human actions are because of justice. And God will not do any injustice and he will not punish or cause pain 
to anyone unless it is appropriate and deserved. What's the difference between the, thir- between the fourth and the fifth opinion? What's the difference between wisdom and justice? Since wisdom includes justice, wisdom for the Rambam, as for all medieval philosophers, meaning morality, uh, morality is included in wisdom. Now, the difference is that the Rambam mentions is that the fourth opinion thought that there needs to be recompense for the suffering of animals, and apparently the Rambam thinks that's not true, but it's not clear how that follows from the opinions that he's expressed. There is another difference, and that is that the Rambam said that according to the fourth opinion, it's possible that God will cause pain undeserved in this world in order to give more reward more pleasure in the next world. And apparently he thinks this is also impossible according to the Torah and according to the fifth opinion. So I suspect what the Ramam is doing here is that the word chokhmah, wisdom, includes more than morality. Whatever the, the, the justification for this particular maneuver that he mentions, that God would cause pain in this world in order to pay you back with more pleasure in the next, I find it hard to swallow the, the logic behind that. But in any event, it's not, a, it's not justified by justice. It might be wise. It might be a good idea if it really works. But it's not justified by justice. So the fourth opinion actually has a wider grasp, which makes it even strange that the Ramam should reject it out of hand because the Ramam's opinion that everything is justice leads obviously to the problem of evil. So why is it that it appears to us that there isn't justice in the world? Whereas most or many of the answers to the problem of evil, as we will see when we will discuss it, try to cast a wider net, a wider range of options which are justifiable for God to pursue, even though they are not expressing strict justice. One of which might be that opinion which he ascribes to Muqtazaliyah, of causing pain in this world in order to pay back more uh, pleasure in the next. I'm not saying that's the only option. It's not an option which is pursued by later Jewish philosophers. It does really seem to be very strange. But nonetheless, that's an example. But the Raman really limits all possibilities. The only thing which explains God's actions in the world, which explains what happens to people, is that God is paying reward to the righteous and dispensing punishment to the, to the unjust. I would like to, at this point, immediately, before we get to the Ramam's own addition to the fifth opinion. The Ramam says the fifth opinion is the opinion of all adherents of Torah, but I have a certain addition that I'd like to make. Before we get to that, I'd like to immediately compare the Ramam's insistence on justice as the hallmark of divine providence with the opinion of Avchastai Kreskas, who is the main... Uh, uh, other opinion in later Jewish philosophy discussing the problem of providence. Wherever the Rambam says justice, or even or even Chochmah, as we said, there's not, not that great a difference between them, Rav Chasekreska says love, Ahava. God's providence in the world is indeed individual, and it covers every single human being, and the guiding light, the motivation for what happens to a person by the hands of God is God's love of man. Now, what is God's love of man directed to? Rav Chastai Kreska says, yes, it's designed to give 
to man good things, where the ultimate good thing that God can give to man is to allow him to be close to God, to give him basically of himself, to give a person dvekut, cleaving onto, onto God. It includes other good things, it includes food and happiness, etc., but the ultimate good thing which motivates God's actions in the world is to bring man closer to God. Now, the difference between Rav Chastai and the Ramam is immediately apparent in one very, very important point. There will be other differences, specifically, again, when we discuss the problem of evil, which, as the Ramam mighty points out, is the immediate con- uh, uh, ramification of theories of Hashem But there is there's a, a more basic distinction here. The Ramam's picture of the God as being judge makes God basically into being reactive. God will not interfere in the world unless justice demands it. So if a person has done nothing, nothing wrong, nothing good, I don't know how common that could be, but if a person has done nothing, then nothing will happen to him either. Whereas Rav Chastai's picture of God, not as a judge of the world, but as one who is giving to the world, and I will add immediately, we'll discuss this again another time, that according to Rav Chastai, the very existence of the world is a continual giving of God to the world, because of God's love to the world. So God is, one, infinitely active, and two, relative to man, he's proactive. If you're sitting and doing nothing, for some reason or another, then God is thinking how to bring you closer to him, how to cause you to react or to do something, or to change or to grow, in such a way that you will become closer to God. Now, I think this is a, basic difference in medieval philosophy in terms of the relationship between man and God. It might have been apparent from my from the tone of my voice that indeed I am more sympathetic to the opinion of Chasei Kreskas. But if I did let that, let that out, I'm sorry, because there is a tremendous advantage, possible advantage, to the Ramam's opinion as well. It comes down to a very, very basic question which is not usually expressed explicitly in, in the medieval philosophers. There was a basic problem in religious philosophy. To the extent that God is more active, then man is less active. A totally religious view, I say religious view in the sense that one is fixated on God's power, God's might, God's wisdom, and God's will, will tend to diminish the role and the value of man. That's why, in, in, in general, in the history of, of philosophy and history of, of, of human thought, there's a tendency to oppose humanism to theism. Does man create and do, or does God create and do? And I think the Ramah may very well have been sensitive to that point. The Ramah does create a system where man's uh, fate is in his own hands. Of course, there is a, a price to pay. If you choose to do evil, you'll be punished. If you choose to do to do the right and to be wise, then you will achieve a great good, the goal of man. You will achieve knowing God. But, but what happens at any given point is really your choice to make. And that does indeed place a tremendous responsibility on, on man. A position like Rav Chastai Kreskas, and we'll see this more when we, when, we, when we discuss it more, would on first glance have the tendency of robbing man of his autonomy. 
I don't think that conclusion is necessary. But nonetheless, at first glance, everything that happens to me is God pulling strings. God is making me a better person. If we take a simple example, say of a classroom. You have a teacher who sits back. He gives out perhaps assignments. Or he, he tells you where the books can be found. Sends you to the library. And tells you to come back in a few months. And they'll give you a grade on the basis of what you've done. Or you can have a teacher, an educator, what we call a mechanech rather than a moreh in Hebrew, who's, who's like constantly viewing each student and, and giving some punishments and giving some encouragement and, and giving each one an individual assignment. And if you don't do it, so he checks up on you and he calls your mother and, and, and he's prodding you or pushing you in different directions because he's trying to get the maximum out of each student. Now, like myself, our sympathies might well be with the second kind of teacher, but we all know that there is a certain value that will be achieved by the first teacher, which might be missed by the second teacher, because the second teacher didn't let the students actually develop themselves. He was pushing and pulling them all the time. So obviously on a philosophic level, one can add that point to a Chastai's picture. Part of God's providence is letting you do things on your own, because it's better for you. But so I'm not actually coming to say what does each person hold. I'm saying that there is a motivation here, which I think is present in the Ramam, although he does not say so explicitly, to really have God only react, but we create our world. And for Chastai, it's quite clear that he's insistent on saying is that God creates our world, and God is responsible, to some extent at least, for what we are and what we will become. He is indeed constantly concerned and constantly acting in a manner to have us turn out the way he wants, to have us come closer to him and to be better people and and to ultimately achieve our love of God and our cleaving, our dvekut, our dvekut with God. These these two, I'm, I'm speaking now more of a picture rather than of a philosophy. God is being infinitely active or God as being a referee for a world where we are active is a very, very basic cleavage in, in, uh, in Jewish philosophy, I think in evil philosophy, and I think in any religious philosophy. And of course it will relate to the problem of evil. Do we expect God to constantly make sure that nothing bad happens, including not letting people do things? Or are we eventually responsible for our fate and therefore have to both suffer and benefit from that which we from that which we have done. This will become even more apparent when we speak about the goal of human existence. But I'll mention it right now because the Ramam will immediately connect Hashkacha Pratit to his view of the goal of human existence, which is knowledge of God. Knowledge of God for the Ramam is achieved by an action of man. You if you make the effort and you think, you will know God. What is God's role in that? He's available. He's the object of our knowledge. So I can know a, something about a tree by looking at the tree. The tree has a role there. The tree, in fact, is the cause of my knowledge of the tree. But it's not doing anything. And you can know God by contemplating God. In Rav Kreskas, the goal of human existence is the love of God. And the love of God is intimately woven and interwoven with the love of God, God's love of man. We love God and God loves us. It's the same thing. And in fact, our love of God is instigated, not because God exists and is worthy of our love, but because God showers us with His own, with His own love. 
Obviously, there are going to be differences. One can immediately, I think, think of differences in relationship to the problem of evil. The Rambam's answer to the problem of evil will have to be either that evil does not exist or that it's unavoidable or that we misinterpreted it. Whereas if Chasek Kreskas will, as we see, again, we're going to have to wait a few weeks, but if Chasek Kreskas will advance a theory to explain why God's love could lead him to actually do evil, it is evil, but it's justified because in the end, it brings us even closer to him. As I pointed out, when I explained the Rambam's strictures against the fourth opinion, if you dealing only in justice, you're extremely limited. Anything wrong is unjust. But if you're dealing in this case, with something wider, before it was wisdom, but now it's even wider, you're dealing with love, then we all know parents' love for a child could involve sometimes inflicting pain. And God's love for humanity could, we have to think how, we have to try to explain the theory, could indeed include things which wouldn't necessarily only answer to the bar of justice. And most importantly, they wouldn't only be reactive to what you have done, according to some rule of what is just or what is unjust, but in fact God initiates things in order to bring the best out of man, because that is God's ultimate purpose in the world. Now to go back to the Rambam, the Rambam adds to the picture he claims is Da'at Torah Tenu HaKdoshah, the opinion of the Torah. He says, I have a few things I'd like to add to that, which are my own opinion. He admits they're his own opinion. The first is that this applies, Hashkacha Pateh, applies only to human beings. It doesn't apply to animals. There, there is Hashkacha Kladit, general rules. The fact is that each species has the, the means of survival. But a given ant, a given bird, or a given tree doesn't make a difference one way or another. There's no need to ask why this ant was stepped on. There is no hashkacha patit on ants. That's his first point. His second point, based on his first point, is much more subtle and, and much more difficult. The Ram says the reason for this is, is that hashkacha patit, divine providence, is in direct relationship to the intelligence of the individual who is being watched over, who is being uh, uh, divinely uh, uh, watched, and in fact is directly relative to his knowing God. The Rav hints at, and there have been 800 years of, of controversy as to what he means exactly, but the Rav says is that somehow our knowing God is the pipeline, is the basis, is the is the substratum on which the bechirach, on which the hashkachapchatit operates. What did the Rambam exactly mean? Some people thought that he basically meant is what I think we would call no hashkachapchatit. What he meant was that if you know God and are intelligent, then you will be protected because wisdom protects you. That is very close to the opinion of the Rabag. Rabag was a more extreme Aristotelian than the Rambam, living somewhat after the Rambam. And the Rambag really says that Hashkachah Pratit basically consists of that the wise are protected by their wisdom. He adds to that there could be prophecy. So Nevu'ah, which is also a form of wisdom, 
It's a higher form of wisdom. It protects you even more. But more or less, the Rabag leaves out divine action. God literally pulling me out of the pit into which I'm placed. The Ramam speaks in terms of God being active. And in fact, he says, you, you cannot have any avel, you cannot have any injustice. And that God does these actions to man. But then he continues and speaks of intelligence and knowledge of God as being the basis for the hashkacha. And so some people again have said that maybe the Ramam was just merely speaking in terms of actions but didn't really mean it. I don't think that's correct in the Rambam, but, but there is some sort of an unknown quantity here in the Rambam as to what is the connection between my knowledge of God and, and God taking care of me. He doesn't mean that God takes care of me as a reward for my knowledge of Him. He, means, he says that the knowledge is the basis, is the, I use the word pipeline, it's, the, it's the, 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 the divine providence flows within the connection, the link, that was created by my knowledge. The Ram draws absolute conclusions from that. He says that therefore, the more an individual knows God, the more he will enjoy divine providence. Divine providence is not equal on all levels. Which means that divine providence doesn't only mean that God is responsible for what happens, but also means that God takes care of you. And God indeed takes care more of those who know Him than those who don't. And therefore the Rambam justifies a greater degree of divine providence for Jews than for non-Jews, even among Jews, for those who, well, basically are philosophers, for those who know Him in one way or another, as opposed to those who don't. And he says it could very well be that there are people who are so ignorant, so lacking in the knowledge of God, that they are equivalent to animals who, he has already said, do not have individual divine providence at all. I should mention, we are now in the 17th parak of the third book of the Moran of Uchim, in the 51st parak, which is a very famous parak because the Ramam there contradicts many of the things he said previously in the book. The Ramam raises a distinct possibility that there is in fact miraculous, miraculous divine providence. No evil, nothing bad can happen to a person who has total divine providence, but that's for people who are totally connected to God, who know God and know God actively and their minds are focused on God at all times. It doesn't necessarily contradict the opinion we've discussed till now, it applies only to a small fraction of the human race, and they indeed uh, uh, benefit from, from the most miraculous divine providence taking care of every one of their needs. In the chapters that we're dealing with, he does not mention this. He says it's a relative thing. The greater your knowledge of God, the greater divine providence applies to you. And without saying, as the Valbach says, that divine providence consists only of allowing you to benefit from your own wisdom, he nonetheless creates a certain parallelism between what the Raman believes is the goal of human life, knowledge of God, and the conditions of human life. Providence, benefit, uh, how well taken care of we are, the two of them are somehow going hand in hand. This, our, our framework, these half-hour shiurim, once a week, do not really allow me to go into more depth. And frankly, I don't have a final answer in my own mind as to how to explain the Rambam. Anyone who's familiar with uh, the literature on the Rambam knows there are at least 20 or 30 or 40 different shades of opinion how to make sense of the Rambam in this point. But it is crucial to understand, once again, 
as we'll see it in many other occasions in the Rambam, how much weight the Rambam places on intellectual knowledge of God. So here, the verse that says that God takes care of the righteous means for the Rambam, God takes special care of those who know Him. Of course, Rambam thinks that if you're righteous and you've done mitzvot, the goal of it was that you should then use the different things you've developed in order to know God. If you don't do so, that itself means that you're throwing away both the purpose and the benefit of Torah and of leading a virtuous life and, in effect, giving away the benefits of divine, of divine, of divine providence. Again, in the picture that I mentioned of Avchastai Kreskas, this, this point would never even arise. Since God loves mankind, it's true, Avchastai says, that God loves those who love Him more than others. So just like the Mamba, Avchastai is very insistent on saying that there are levels, multiple levels of Ashkachapatit, the closer you are to God, because of you loving him, the more he is close to you. But nonetheless, it doesn't need a, a basis of, of knowledge, nor is love of God the basis, the way it appears to be in the Rambam. It's simply, it's simply an explanation. If we love God, then God uh, loves us. And on a personal level, he takes a greater interest in our lives and will make greater efforts to, to work with us and bring us closer and bring us closer to him. But the way that Ashkacha is expressed is indeed through basically a miraculous, in other words, a direct action of God in the world. God arranges and does things for people who he's interested in in order to bring them closer, closer to God, in order to make them have a better life, in order to give them more good. God literally gives good things to man in a direct manner, which according to the Rambam would not normally be true because nature, as created by God, provides good things for those who act in the proper manner without the necessity for God's, for God's direct, direct action. So the Rambam's own opinion is a bit of a mystery here, but we should remember that the Rambam says that his opinion fits into the framework of the fifth opinion. The fifth opinion is the opinion of all, he says, all those who go in the way of the Torah. I have certain additions. And it would appear to be incorrect, I think, for the Rambam's additions to contradict his original definition. His original definition is that the world is run by justice. And justice means the good are rewarded and the sinful transgressors, the evildoers, are, are, are punished. In the uh, years after the Rambam, there undoubtedly was a school of Jewish thought, a controversial school of Jewish thought, that more or less limited Hashkacha Pratit, although claiming that it believed in Hashkacha Pratit, but in attributing Hashkacha Pratit to the basic way the world is run, to wisdom, to, to knowledge of the world, to, to the fact that the world itself rewards the virtuous, that intelligence provides its own reward, or that virtue provides its own reward. In the, in the, common, sale, in the common saying, uh, crime never pays. And somehow, this would be a philosophic, and I think viewed by most religious people as being not really a religious opinion. It was a development of the Rambam's approach, development of one half of the Rambam's approach, and it was severely criticized and, 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 and caused a great deal of uh, controversy, in, uh, specifically in Spanish Jewry, in the, in the years, in the uh, 13th and 14th centuries, 
in Spain where there was a great deal of division between those who were called the philosophers, the acculturated philosophers, and uh, the pious Jews as represented by most of the Banim we know. Here the Valbach has a very special position because he comes very close to defending the more extreme Aristotelian non, non-hashkacha patit, non-interventionist view of God's, of God's place in the world. And again, I want to stress, before we reject it out of hand, this opinion, that there is a certain benefit involved here. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's, it's an a-religious benefit, which I don't think is a criticism. It gives man room to work. And that itself is, in fact, a religious value. By limiting God, man can work. And the Lama himself, when he defines his opinion, when he defines the opinion of, of Torah Tenu Akhtoshah, the entire fifth opinion, he starts with first by saying that the Torah has always believed that man has ability, Ladam Yesh to do anything which he's capable of doing. He doesn't have infinite ability in nature, but he is capable, basically what we call Bechirach of Shit, he has free will, he's capable of doing things. And then, he says, everything that happens to man happens because of Din, because of justice. And it was part of what the Raman defines as the Torah's view of divine providence is the point that man has ability. And why does he put that into this context? It might be an important point to say someplace else. You have a discussion of free will. The Raman cannot talk about divine providence without talking about free will. Because again, I think the Raman is sensitive not to allow divine providence to crush free will. And he suspects very strongly that the third opinion, that of the Asharia, God's will is everything, then your will is nothing. Whatever happens, because God wanted it. And it could be that the Rambam was suspicious of the fourth opinion as well. Wisdom is such a wide, such a wide power. Everything that takes place should reflect wisdom. Everything that takes place should be the best of all possible uh, uh, situations, which would not leave us very much room, if any, in which to act. The Rambam knows that it's a principle of Judaism, which he claims that no one ever disagreed with, that man has free will. The Rambam means it's not something merely psychological about man. Man has free will. That means that the world is, is designed, is created, is influenced by our actions. And God, therefore, has to step back to allow those actions to have significance. And I think that is what leads the Rambam, among other things, to say that, okay, God will, in the end, give a verdict. So to speak, if you're playing on a playing field, there are players and there are, and there are referees. The players basically create the game, but the referee steps in and says, that's illegal, that's legal. And the opinion of Rav Kreskas and others, it's based on the Ramban, it's based on, on, a, on, a, on a major trend in Jewish, in Jewish philosophy that says that God is responsible for almost everything will require a much more subtle uh, development so as not to lead to the crushing of man, which Ram is correct, would be an impossible conclusion for Judaism, which is based on Torah, which is based on a command to man to act in a certain way, to take responsibility for, for his life. You have been listening to the sixth Shir on issues in medieval philosophy. And now, we will turn to the Halakha Yomit. We've uh, 
begun Kriyat Shema and its Bechot. The first Bechah of Kriyat Shema in the morning is Bechat Yotzer O. Bechat Yotzer O includes within it a Kedusha. We say Kadosh, 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 and Baruch Shem Kuron There's a well-known disagreement among the Rishonim. Is it really a Kedusha? The difference would be, could a individual, a private individual, say it? Because Tavash Abedusha can only be said by ten people, by with with a minion. That's why Kedusha in Shmonesra you do not say on your own. And, but there are two other Kedushot in Tefillah, one in Yotzeh and another one, which we'll talk about when we get to it, in Uvad Tzion. So some Yishonim, principally the Rambam in the Yad HaChazaka, say that Yechid Ein Omra, a, a, an individual who's not having with a minion, should not say the Kedushah, because you're not allowed to say Kedushah if you don't have a minion. Other Yishonim, Rebbeinu uh, Yonah, and many other Yishonim, say that no, this is not really a Kedushah. Kedushah is when you sanctify God's name. Here we're simply telling a story that the angels sanctify God's name. Very hard to tell the difference because when we say Kedushan Shvanesi, we also say that we will sanctify God the way the angels sanctify God. He always mentioned the angels first because that's where it comes from. It comes from the description in Yeshayahu and Yechezkel, what the angels said before God in the, in the prophecy which Yeshayahu and Yechezkel saw. But here it doesn't say we will say what the angels say. Here it says this is what the angels do. And, and therefore many Rishonim say that it's not a, an active Kedushah, it's, it's a description of someone else's Kedushah. And therefore, it can be said. It can be said in private. That's halacha lemaisa. What's accepted by all all Jewish communities. But Pauskin, for instance, the Beit the Beit uh, the Beit Yosef thought that you should really be worried about the other opinion, especially since in the case of the Beit Yosef, the Zohar uh, has the opinion of the Rambam that a individual should not say kedusha, and the Beit Yosef, and as a general rule, feels that where there is no explicit Gemara, one should follow the Zohar. So what the Beit Yosef suggested was that, okay, an individual can say it, but if he's by himself and not with a minion, so he should say it, This is a kind of a trick, that if you're saying something which perhaps should be said in a minion, so you have to make sure you say it differently. That you're not saying it for in real, but you're merely quoting. How do you know you're merely quoting Psukim? You say them, as though you were reading the Torah, in this case reading from the, from the Nevi'im. Um, the truth is that even according to this suggestion there's no real halacha that you have to quote a pasuk with ta'amim so I think the real point is that you should say it ki'ilu Torah you should have the intention according to the Beit Yosef in order to avoid the problem of whether you can say this kedusha kedusha de Yotzer by yourself you should have the intention that you're quoting a pasuk the way to show that would be to read it with ta'amim the main thing is really more your intention of how you say it the Beit Yosef admits that people don't do this that in his time, the minag was, in all places that he knew of, that all people said it, whether they were a minion or they were not in a minion, and, and halach said that's what's done. In later generations, the Gra returned to this opinion, he taught Yosh B'choshesh, and therefore the Mishnah Bura returns to the Beit Yosef's Chumrah, that if you're by yourself, it will be better if you said it, Benigun Ubatamim, you said it, Kikorei Torah. but again, he knows that that's not the minag, and halach everyone says, that halacha lemaisa, an individual should say the kedusha because we at least also follow the opinion that it's not an active kedusha but merely a quotation of the kedusha of the malachim. There also is a a, a difference in nafkamina in the opposite direction. If you were 
in some other place, say in Birkut Kriyachma. For some reason, you were very in the middle of Kriyachma. And you heard the Chazan get up to the point of the Kedusha of Yotzeah. So if it's a required answer, like Kedusha itself, then one can answer Kedusha even in the middle of Kriyachma. But if it's not, if it's merely something which each person is saying to himself, then you could not interrupt your other bracha or your kriyachma to answer for that. So therefore, some person point out that if we are basically concerned about both opinions, surely if you're every day relying on the opinion that says it's not an act of kdusha, but merely a one long bracha which includes a quotation of how the malachim, how the angels sanctify God, then you would not be justified in interrupting another bracha or kriyachma in order to say this kdusha together with the tzibur if you were saying it in in, uh, in a minion. Halach ala I think what, uh, what should be done is that if one is saying it in a minion, then one should say it in the manner that a minion would say it, which means, which is what the chazan does, the chazan gets up to the point of the line beforehand, and then the entire congregation says together, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Then the Chazan says Kadosh and Ba'ofanim, and they all say together, Baruch Kvar Hashemim Kumo. In order that, if we already have a minion, then you should say it properly. You might say that that's true, then one should also stand. We'll talk about standing at a later time. Uh, but Ashkenazim, the Psaka of Amar, is that one should stand for Ot Vim Dusha, like Kaddish, like Dusha, like Baruch. Svadim don't necessarily stand, but according to the Psaka of the Ramah, and if you thought this was also a Ktusha, then you should stand for this as well. But no one stands for it. And the reason is because Birchot Kriyachma specifically said sitting. Just like Kriyachma said sitting. So there's a bit of a contradiction involved here. Should I stand because of the Vashu Ktusha, or should I sit because it's part of, of Kriyachma? So the meaning is that everyone sits, but one tries to say it together with the Tzibur in the manner that the Tzibur says Kedusha. Uh, but if you're by yourself, then you say it simply as part of the Bacha, and you rely on those opinions that say there is no Kedusha here at all. That's it for today. Tomorrow, on Wednesday, we will have the weekly Shir of Binyamin Tabori called the Weekly Mitzvah. Until then, this is Ezra Beck wishing you Kol Tov V'Yom Tov from Yeshivat HaRetzion. You've been listening to the Daily podcast of KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.